Hello, and uh, we're really glad that you've been able to join us for our service. Uh, as Philip has mentioned, I'm Edward and have the, the joy and privilege and honour of preaching this morning from our passage in chapter 3 of Philippians. Just a quick prayer. Father, we thank you for the word that is record your word, your testimony, the story of your people and the inspiration that it gives. Help me as I speak and my friends, our family, as we listen to hold on to truth, to grow, and to take the next steps of faith. Amen. It's not surprising that we've called this series Joyful Living. As Philip read for us, chapter 3, verse 1, Paul writes to the church in Philippi, his friends, his family, sisters and brothers, Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord. I think we've mentioned it already, but within this letter, this epistle, four chapters, Paul uses the word joy or rejoice 16 times. At the end of the last two sections, Paul has again reiterated this theme with this encouragement, this admonition to adopt an attitude of joy, even in the midst of difficulty. Even when it was tough, rejoice. Remain steadfast and rejoice. Don't give in to a quarreling or divisive spirit. Rejoice. And when he was celebrating Epaphroditus, and his service in the gospel, even though he nearly lost his life, rejoice. As we'll see, Paul in the coming uh, verses addresses some of the challenges that the church in Philippi and indeed the believers in the New Testament world at that time found. And in the midst of that, he says, rejoice. In the midst of trials, in the midst of life, whatever is happening, maintain an attitude of joy. Rejoice. I guess over my Christian life, it's one of the things that I keep learning because I learn a message and then a lesson and then circumstances change and I have to relearn this key fact to maintain an attitude of joy, of thankfulness, of rejoicing in the midst of whatever is happening. It's one of the things Philip and I and the leadership team seek to try and do in our worshipping life together. When we gather for a service, indeed this morning in our YouTube, this, uh, today as we gather up at the school for our live service, when we meet as a church for our vision meeting, the first thing that we do is worship. We sing praises to God, we look up, we lift up our eyes and our heart to recognise that God is God. That he is worthy of praise, that he is good to seek his face. It's really interesting uh, sometimes how we envision God, how we picture him. The caricatures are so often true. Sometimes people think of him a bit like a Father Christmas figure with a big beard and just gives out good things to those who've been nice. Or maybe the stern one who looks disapprovingly from on high and we kind of think, oh, I hope he's not noticed that. But also, do we recognise who he is as the scriptures reveal? Compassionate and gracious, slow 
to anger and abounding in love. That beautiful verse in Zephaniah, he rejoices over us with singing. One of the things that I've really appreciated in my Christian walk, and I know it's a privilege, is when I've had a chance to, to serve and work in, in Africa, in Zimbabwe for six months uh, on a gap year, and also with some visits uh, over to India, is encountering a church congregation, a fellowship of believers who rejoice. I've always so loved, even though I don't speak the language and don't necessarily understand every word that is being sung, but that sense of deep joy in Jesus, of worship that is heartfelt and body uh, engaged. It's one of the things we've been learning through lockdown is we've not been able to sing uh, together inside in our services. We've been learning to worship with our body and we've done, as Philip said last week, we've learned to clap more than we ever have. They're all kind of uh, outer signs of an inward joy. Worship should be faith journey can be full of joy and vibrancy. In lockdown, how are your attitudes? I know mental health has been a struggle. I don't want to, to be glib or make light of any of these things. In the easing of lockdown, how is our attitude? As Paul reminds us, brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. Augustine of Hippo in the 4th century said the Christian, the believer, should be an alleluia from head to foot. A guy called Harvey Cox says that the modern person in our life has been, uh, been pressed so hard towards useful work and rational calculation, he has all but forgotten the joy of ecstatic celebration. Celebration brings joy into life and joy makes us strong. Remember what the saint of old Nehemiah recorded for us in scripture, the joy of the Lord is our strength. I don't know how you express that. If you're living at home with a family, it's sometimes harder to be demonstrative. Children say, oh, you're so embarrassing. But maybe it's still worth it. Or maybe go out on a walk in the countryside early morning, late at night, and raise your voice to take stock. Count your blessings, an old phrase. But to remember to give thanks and in so doing, recognize goodness. Even if there's challenges, even if there's struggles, there is still so much to be thankful for. Keep a record. Uh, uh, Ron Boyd McMillan, who was here a, a number of months ago, said one of the practices he has is to, to recognise in his devotional time every morning ten things for which he is thankful for, all of which set the scene and begin that primer for joy. If we lack joy, and maybe the church in Philippi did, he seems to want to underline this for us 16 times, Learn to rejoice. A choice to rejoice doesn't just depend on circumstances, but stems from that heart of faith. It lives regardless of what has happened to us. Those things are real. But 
takes hold of and embraces the realities of what God has said, of who he is, and the truth of his word. Rejoicing releases joy. The joy of the Lord is our strength. God is joy, and his joy over us makes us strong. Maybe a challenge for this week before we get on to anything else. Joyful living. Rejoice. And Paul moves on to a second theme in chapter 3, and I've kind of covered this with the word beware. He starts off and he reminds us all through this letter, rejoice. But in chapter 3, he talks about a couple of things to beware. Watch out, he says. What, for what? He says in, in verse 3, um, sorry, verse 2, watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. I mean, in our modern day, we kind of think Paul's being a little bit harsh here, isn't he? I mean, this is strong language. No one should speak of another person like this. We would get uh, uh, cancelled maybe in our culture today if we used such strong language. Dogs, he calls them. Men who do evil. Mutilators. Beware the criminals. Beware the cutters. He's not alone in the Bible for strong language. Jesus, uh, sorry, John the Baptist, when he was calling people to repent and be ready for the kingdom of God, spoke about you brood of vipers. And Jesus, even in the sermon uh, to the Pharisees, includes the refrain, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Something is really at stake for Paul. Something matters. When we use this sort of language, we, we maybe find it a little bit jarring and a little bit shocking because we are in a culture of tolerance of as long as someone's view doesn't impinge upon ours, then we can live and cohabit peacefully and without conflict. We're constantly faced in the, the media and in contemporary society with, as I've mentioned it earlier, of being cancelled or uh, of, of finding ourselves um, being accused of uh, abusive language or discrimination and of course discrimination and abusive language isn't right but Paul here is saying something strong in our culture we find that difficult we think ah uh, is it just too strong is it being manipulative is it being a bit fundamentalist and yet Paul here is actually drawing a line. He's calling out heresy as heresy. He's actually recognizing that it's important to take a stand on theological matters, even if it appears on face value risky, even if it seems that other people will perceive it as intolerant or perhaps ignorant of wider culture. Yet for Paul, this is one of those lines in the sand. Why? Paul recognises that what is going on, it's not so much in Philippi, it's much larger in Galatians and in Paul's letter to Rome. But there are things that are taking place as challenges to the truth, false belief, that if they weren't addressed, would either water down the gospel or mean that we had no gospel to inherit now at all. 
Watch out, beware, he says. Indeed, that refrain has been true throughout church history. One of the first heresies in the church was, was propagated and promulgated by a man called Marcion, who thought of the Old Testament God as an angry and vindictive God and took uh, scissors, well, or a knife, and cut out any reference to the Old Testament from the New and abandoned the Old entirely and said, the, the God of Jesus is a much nicer God than the Old and therefore the Old is wrong. The early church recognized that as wrong, as error, and stood firmly and centered upon the God who has revealed himself through scriptures and ultimately in Jesus Christ. Heresy must be called out because if we don't, we lose the gospel. Now here comes the point of wisdom. What matters in calling heresy out is understanding what is the major issue. The central thing is keeping Jesus centered. Don't major on the minors. There are lots of things that are controversial in uh, Christian culture for all sorts of reasons, church history and historical precedents and so forth. But in some ways they can be more uh, secondary, so to speak, and, and maybe that's ruffled some feathers. But for Paul, really, what is at stake? You know, when he, he challenges the church in Corinth, Corinth about a number of things, but he also lets pass certain things. But he wants to keep central the critical issue, that of Jesus. What is the gospel about? Here, Paul challenges and reminds the church in Philippi that Jesus is front of sage, centered, at the heart of all things, to undermine that is to lose the gospel entirely he says again and again that salvation the good news comes at God's initiative through Jesus Christ and we take hold of it purely through faith without doing anything else Jesus Christ the son of God has done it all this is the gospel the good news of Jesus Christ. Paul is wanting to say it's not the gospel and. It's not the gospel and get circumcised. It's not the gospel and follow a, a certain code. It's not the gospel and follow certain practices or sign up to certain statements of faith. We are Jesus people. Jesus alone. You see, it's not true that salvation comes through Jesus Christ and some other series of beliefs, patterns, religious works or good behavior. If that is what faith has become or is spoken of, it is not the gospel. And people who speak of those things, I think, have actually forgotten how lost we are. How desperately sinful and broken we are without Jesus Christ. To know that nothing can mend us, nothing can put us back in the place of favour with God solely but by Jesus Christ. We cannot heal ourselves, we cannot improve ourselves sufficiently. We are dead in our transgressions and sins. Only Jesus saves. We're entirely dependent upon God for salvation. There's a reason to rejoice in itself. If it wasn't for Jesus, where would we be? 
Philippians 3, in what Paul challenges, helps us to understand the nature of our human predicament. And he does so by, by kind of drawing out what Paul is like in himself. He says, if I was to make a checklist, a CV, how would he fare? To those who said actually circumcision is important. Well, he, he, he catalogues who he is. In verse 3, he says, For it is we who are the circumcision who serve God by his Spirit, who boast in Jesus Christ, and who put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence. And he goes on to list them. He says, I have more. I mean, Paul may be slightly embarrassed by saying this, but, but he's in a good position to say it. He said, if you want to look at the credentials that I have, they are these. That he was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel. In other words, he's a Jew of Jews. That everything was done in accordance with the law of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, absolutely in regard to the law. The hint there is, is remember what Paul's first name was before it got changed? It was Saul. The first king of Israel was Saul from the tribe of Benjamin. He says, as for zeal, he was zealous above all zealots, persecuting the church, and as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. His spiritual CV was top of the pile. If anyone should have had any fast track to God, any claim on heaven's rewards, it would have been Paul, Saul. And so he thought in living out that, that fundamentalist faith that he had, that would be true. And yet, he was encountered by the Lord on the road to Damascus. And he realized, as he says in verse 7, whatever were gains to me, whatever he was standing on, whatever that he believed gave him a head and shoulders above the rest and could stand spiritually proud before his fellow man and before God, he says, I now consider loss, rubbish, nothing for the sake of Christ. That's astonishing. Now, for us, as the people in Philippi, circumcision perhaps was one of those things that, that we think, what's that about? It happens now. Having the foreskin removed is one of those things that is done more for perhaps uh, family reasons or sometimes for health reasons. And yet, for the Jewish people, it roots all the way back to Genesis, to the forming of the people of God, of covenant, of relationship, of God choosing Abraham, and Abraham responding by faith. All the way back to Genesis 17, where those who were identified as God's true people were circumcised. And yet, through the pages of the Old Testament, the problem sets in that if you trust the outward that which is done by the hands of men, more than that which is done through the gospel, then our faith is directed in the wrong place. Beware that something that we do or is done to us by human beings does not save. In the Old Testament, it's really clear 
and very obvious in, in 1 Samuel 16, 7, that the human heart is what God looks at. What is within, not the outward appearance that is of real concern. That the Old Testament speaks, even though they practice circumcision as a sign of belonging, that actually what was needed was a heart change. The circumcision of the heart, it speaks of in the Old Testament. Jeremiah and Deuteronomy. And as such, they looked forward to a time when, when God would do this, that which we cannot do ourselves, no one can do it for us, would happen by a very sovereign work of God. And in verse 3, Paul's point is that this time has arrived. We, the circumcision, the Philippians were Gentiles. This procedure hadn't been performed upon them. Paul was circumcised as the Jew of Jews, Hebrew of Hebrews. And yet he says that none of that matters. And this was such a shock. In the pages of Acts, we see that, 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 that the Jewish background believers, those who loved the scriptures, those who'd encountered Jesus, actually thought that, well, to be a follower of Jesus, you needed to comply with certain things that demonstrated that. And Paul says, no, it's actually as a matter of the heart. These outward signs, these outward markers aren't necessary. The true factors, the true characteristics that demonstrate true belief are worshipping by the Spirit, of glorying or boasting solely in Jesus Christ, and of putting no confidence in the flesh at all. In our culture and society, we need to be aware of things that are added on to say, this is what it truly looks like to be a follower of Jesus. Of course, there are things and attitudes and behavior and, and, and how we, we live faithfully as, as followers of Jesus, but they come from that heart spring of knowing and trusting in Jesus. When it becomes a must, I must do this in order to belong, and by that I mean something that is outward or some moral code, that then demonstrates and says, oh yeah, you're a believer because I can see that you read your Bible every day or I can see that you attend worship uh, regularly or, or whatever it happens to be in whatever culture you drink or you don't drink. You wear certain clothes or you, you keep to a certain pattern of life. All of those can be good. But if they become the sign that actually you're a true believer unlike everyone else, then we've missed the mark. Heresy. It's about Jesus. Paul starts off by saying rejoice in, in, in the Lord, in the gospel. He says beware of how easy it is to subvert the gospel, of how easy it is to, to transform it even ever so slightly and lose the centrality of Jesus. And he comes at the end of this section to talk about no, have confidence don't have confidence in the flesh or in circumcision or religious uh, conduct. Nothing. There's no profit in that. There's no advantage in that. But rather in Jesus Christ himself. Paul discovered that 
as a bolt came out of the blue on the road to Damascus, that he saw that his attitudes and his sense of privilege and entitlement of his right to belong meant nothing. He needed to bow the knee and embrace Jesus, trust Jesus as his Savior and Lord, as the one who died upon the cross, as the initiative of God, of the goodness of God the Father sending his Son. To see that on the cross, the fulfillment of of the law and the code of the Old Testament was entirely satisfied. And that now, simply coming and accepting that Jesus is the Son of God and died for us, holding on to that gift of life opens up the way to belong. It's amazing. That is now the confidence of the believer. Nothing else gives us gain or status. When God took hold of Paul and Paul responded in faith, he recognized all of this stuff falls away. And he was really foolish to try and think otherwise. Consider loss for the sake of Jesus Christ. Everything but Jesus is loss. And he says, I'm willing to let it go for the sake of the surpassing greatness of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. Any attempt to add to it, any attempt to lessen that by adding in some way to what God has freely given amounts really to a rejection of the gospel. And that's why Paul uses that strong language, those mutilators, those dogs. Because it sullies the pure, wonderful, amazing gift of Jesus Christ. And the invitation, whoever we are, however righteous in our own eyes or however broken we are in our own eyes, the invitation is come and walk with me and live in Jesus in life. It's amazing. Know that. As part of my devotion life, I often take time if, if questions and doubts, if discouragement, of thinking, does this gospel make any difference in the hurricane of our culture that seems to want to rubbish and belittle and suppress anything to do with Jesus, even his name in the public sphere, what it means to stand out in the crowd. Is it worth it? Again and again, I come back to this in my own heart and my own life. Do I believe that Jesus was a real person that lived? Well, I think incontrovertibly, yes. It would be foolish and in, uh, electorally, in, intellectually um, incredible to say otherwise. Jesus truly lived. But what happened to him? For me, the evidence again is incontrovertible that he was crucified on a cross by the Romans and the Pontius Pilate with the assent of the religious authorities. And then what? Jesus died and was buried. And here comes the central question, the nub of everything. Did he rise from the grave? Did he arise from the grave conquering death such that the tomb was empty? 
I pause because that is the most foundational and central and pivotal and life-changing and reformative question that we can ever come to answer. For me, I know for all sorts of reasons that the answer to that is yes, Jesus is alive. And I know that. And as such, once I reaffirm that, that conviction in my mind and that belief in my heart, this following him, this standing against the hurricane of our culture, this standing up again, you know, going against the grain of the universe, this living for Jesus, even when it's suffering and difficult, even when it seems, where is he? Where is God? Why aren't prayers answered? I know that the tomb is empty, that the Son of God is risen, and the gospel is true. From there comes rejoicing. From there comes those certainties, even when we can't see it. This is faith, that he is doing a new thing, that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us, that we are about the Father's business as we follow Jesus Christ, that we will reap a harvest if we don't give up, that God will meet all our needs according to his riches in grace, that we are Christ's ambassadors in the world and that we are more than conquerors through Christ. It's why Paul can write, not that I've already taken hold of this or arrived at the goal, but I press on to take hold of that which for Christ has taken hold of me. One thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal. Sister, brother, Whatever is weighing you down, whatever baggage you're carrying, whatever you think you have failed God or you're insufficient for God or you think uh, that he's disappointed in some way or he seems to be distant, reflect on what Paul is saying. Uh, rejoice, recognize the favor of God. Beware of taking the gospel out of the gospel. It is all about Jesus. Come back to him. Read the Gospels again, perhaps. Or spend time using some songs in worship, privately on a walk in your heart, reflecting on some verses. Ask the Holy Spirit to reveal Jesus afresh to you and the goodness of grace for you that your Father in heaven rejoices over you and know this. Ask the Lord to let it seep in and percolate out to know it and let that inspire your next step. To press on. And maybe even today for someone watching, there's that choice of abandon, trusting in yourself or hoping in some way that you might just please God and turn to Jesus who welcomes you and says, come to me if you're weary or heavy laden or burdened. Walk with me. Follow me. Know me. Trust me. Before the end of the service, just pause the video and quietly pray and say, Jesus, I'm sorry that I've doubted you. Sorry that I've trusted something else. All of that doesn't matter. I'm so, so sorry for it. And now I turn to you and trust you afresh. Let us know what happens. My prayer for us as we come back together as a worshipping community is that we would keep Jesus at the centre of all things. 
that we would be a people who will rejoice, not just because we're coming back together, but because we know the grace of God. Amen.